message of Christ's love. And that will be from Ephesians chapter 3. So if you would please turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Seek a deeper knowledge of Christ's love. Ephesians 3, and we'll read from 14 to 19. And please stand with me as we read God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Ephesians 3.14 For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of of God. Let us continue standing as we cry out to our God together. O oh, our great King in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do praise and bless you this morning. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are the fruit, O oh, Father, of your eternal electing love. Oh, Holy Spirit, you came and applied these glorious things to us in our lives here in this sinful world. You called us out of darkness and put us in your kingdom. And now here we are, a select people, an elect people, a people called out, a church of Jesus Christ. And our desire this morning is to praise and bless your name. We want to dig deep into your glorious things. We want our hearts to be filled with joy and gladness. We want our hearts to be convicted of sin. Oh, Lord, we want to be stirred up wherever we have left our first love. Lord, we want to see the love of Christ this morning. Show it to us, please, we pray. Oh, Lord, you have hidden it from most of the world. Reveal it to us, we pray, as you already have. Show us. How great, O oh Lord Jesus Christ, your love for us is. Help me that I would not hide your glorious truth. And Father, I do pray for us as a church. Have mercy upon us. Strengthen us. Refresh us. Revive us. Help us to be a suitable temple for the Holy Spirit. Help us to be the family of God. Lord, we think of our pastor this morning. Heal him, we pray, and protect Sister Myra. And I pray that you would have mercy on all those who are sick, as many are. Be gracious to them, we pray. Bless us now. Bring a blessing to us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. To know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, the messenger of the risen and ascended king. And he had a message for the brethren in Ephesus, and he has a message for the brethren at Mount Zion this morning. God saved us so we could enjoy deep knowledge or experience of Christ's love, not only in the ages to come, but in this world. Deeper knowledge of his love is always worth pursuing. Deeper experiences of Christ's love lead to the fullness of God, Christian life at its best. 
Does Jesus love you? Does Jesus love you? Does the Lord Jesus Christ love you? Does he love you? Is his love weak and worth passing over quickly? Or is it strong as death? Is his love partial and half-hearted, easily turned aside by some weakness on your part, by some sin on your part? Or is the love of Jesus Christ all the way, out and out, giving of himself to you and for you, his beloved? Does he love you? Do you know he loves you? Do you know he loves you? Do you think maybe he loves you? But you are so distant and far away from that great king of the universe that maybe he has a hard time communicating it to you. He can't really reveal his love to you. The Apostle Paul, commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, tells us that it is not only possible to know Jesus' love for you, but it is worth praying for, pursuing, and attaining. We all like to be loved. My wife loves me. And her love for me is one of my greatest earthly treasures. I love to be loved by her. We all like having friends who love us, friends that we love and they love us. Love is a delight to our hearts. Love, someone loving us, gives us joy and strength through great trials. Love gives us direction in life. When there are 10,000 things that I could do on a Saturday, if one person who loves me needs my help, then I know what I need to do on that Saturday. Their love guides my hands and feet to serve them. Do you love Christ's love? If you're a Christian, you profess that he loves you. Does the love of Christ delight your heart? Does it give joy and strength to you in deep trials? Does it give you direction? When you have 10,000 things you could do, does the love that Christ has for you give you a picture of what you should do? What is his love to you? What does it mean to you? Now let's just realize that Jesus's love is exclusive. The, the, the size, the greatness, the magnitude of his love is unlimited, and we'll see that in this very passage. But the objects of his love are exclusive. Jesus told his disciples, I have chosen you. I pray not for the world. I have chosen you. Personal choice is one thing that makes love special to us. If Jesus has captured your heart and you have responded to him by believing his gospel and by loving his people, then you have been set apart by his love from the world, the vast majority of people around you. God's love has set you apart from all the other people in your neighborhood. All the people that you mingle with at Walmart, you are different from a large number of them because God has revealed the greatness, the sweetness, the glory of his love to you. That should never puff you up. It should never make you complacent and proud. It should awe you. It should astonish you. It should give us a fresh desire to love him back. He didn't set his love on wise, mighty, noble people. He set his love upon little old you, little old me. No, not little old you and me. Sinful you and sinful me. Law-breaking, disobedient, rebellious, fist-raising, God-hating you and me. And he justified us, sanctified us, washed us, cleansed us. He loved us enough to do all of those things for us. Don't you want to have a deeper knowledge of that love? Don't you want to pursue that love to its fullest? This passage that we've read here, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, is a prayer 
It's a prayer of Paul, and he carefully positioned this prayer in the center of this book of Ephesians. And his choice of the place where he put it tells us that the subject of pursuing deeper knowledge of Christ's love is crucial for the Christian life. Paul wrote Ephesians, the whole book, from chapter 1 to 6, with the purpose that Christians would know what God has done for them. And this knowledge would give them an experience of fellowship with God and unity with one another. And in the middle of this book, this prayer is a hinge that connects between what God has done, chapters 1 to 3, and what we are to do, chapters 4 to 6. Because notice we're right here at the end of chapter 3. It's right between those two great sections. It looks back at who God is to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What he has done for us in love, chapters 1 to 3, and what the life we should live as a result is, chapters 4 to 6. Paul tells us all God has done for us in the first chapters, and then he prays we'll have a full experience of those things, and then he says, now you are to live as the family of God, the temple of God, the saints of God. In chapters 1 to 3, we could say you've got the engine of what God has done. And then in chapters 4 to 6, you've got the wheels of what you should do, where the rubber meets the road. But experiencing the love of Christ is the transmission that takes the engine and makes the wheels turn. The engine of God's work, his dealings for us from eternity into time and through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we experience the reality of that. We know the fullness of that. And then we're able to turn around and say, wow, that means I'm supposed to live a certain way. And I not only am supposed to, I can I can because of his work. To change the metaphor, what God has done is the living water. What you should do is bear fruit as his, the trees of his planting. Experiencing the love of Christ to the full is opening the floodgate of that living water and letting it flow into the garden so that the whole orchard blooms and bears much fruit. That's what we want. We want our church to bear much fruit. And this is, like many of the things in the New Testament, this is not simply an individualistic idea. It's not just that I get filled with the knowledge of Christ's love, but that we should. And as we are filled with that glorious knowledge, we are then filled as a body with the fullness of God, and we then function as the temple of the living God. You can see that Paul is directly using this metaphor of plants, trees, in verse 17, where he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, then he says, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, rooted in Christ's love, filled with the fruits of God filling us. So number one for our message this morning, the first point, and this is from verses 14 and 15. I'm sorry, 14 through 17. Seek a deeper knowledge of Christ's love because our triune God saved us specifically for this experience. So seek a deeper knowledge of Christ's love because our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saved us for that. The Father purposed from eternity to save us because he loved us. Look at verses 14 and 15. Chapter 3, 14. For this cause, Paul says, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's in the context here when he calls the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the one whose name is put on the whole family. It's not simply a title of God that stands by itself. He has instructed the Ephesians in the truths of what Jesus means to them. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has also told them that they are now the family of God. So when he says, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, he's appealing back to the last three chapters. At the very least, it indicates that the church of Jesus Christ, that united group of people saved from both Jews and Gentiles, he talked about that in chapters, chapter 3, and united by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. In chapter 1, Paul had told the Ephesians that the Father predestinated them to the adoption of children. That's family language. What do you adopt children for? To make them your family. By Jesus Christ to himself. In chapter 2, verse 19, Paul had told them that they, as Gentiles, were no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. It's a slightly different picture, but in the way Paul's using these metaphors, these pictures, it functions in a similar way. To be a fellow citizen is to be an heir of the benefits of the country, and he's talking about a family, so he's talking about members of the same family. And then he says, and of, chapter 219, and of the household of God. The household of God. That's what we are, the family of God. The family or household is named by God's name, the household of God, the family of God, because God is the creator of the family. And when you go back through chapters 1 and 3, you see that the Father, he predestinated this glorious reality to be accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be changed from being aliens and outcasts and defiled sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins and made the family, the household, the nation of God. And Ephesians is packed full of wonderful truths of what God has done for us. And so really what I'm doing is just looking at his phrases here and looking back at a few of the things that he's bringing in with these phrases. There's so much more. But the Father, when he says he bows his knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named He's done so much for us in making us this household of God, this family that bears his name. He blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, chapter 1, verse 3. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In love, verse 4, the love of the Father there. He predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did he want to make us his children? Because he wanted to praise his name. This was all to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he made us accepted in the beloved. Accepted in Jesus. God, our Father, the Father of glory, the Father of the one beautiful family is the one who bestows the Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. The Father subjugated everything in the universe to Jesus Christ when he descended under the wrath and judgment of God and ascended up above all things, being exalted as the Lord of the universe. And what was that for? So he could give us an inheritance in him. Verse 11 of chapter 1. In chapter 2, Paul said that this beautiful family that God the Father purposed to create shouldn't have any dead children in it. And we were dead. Oh, if you are outside of Christ, you're dead this morning. Dead in trespasses and sins. And all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, when he loved us, when the Father worked in us by the Holy Spirit, we were like that abandoned baby of Ezekiel 16. I don't know if you remember that picture. Cast out to the dogs in bloody corruption. But praise the Father. He saved us by Christ. He raised us with Christ. He raised us from that death of sin. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, the gift of the Father. So that's why Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. It's God's family because he predestinated it, he purposed it, and he worked 
all these glorious things. But then Paul goes on and he says, not only does he show that the Father was involved in saving us for this purpose of knowing, experiencing the fullness of Christ's love, but that the Holy Spirit was involved as well. Look at verse 16. That he, the Father, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. And he's already talked to the Ephesians about this work of the Holy Spirit, this empowering, strengthening work. After we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians, Paul tells us in Ephesians that he sealed us with the gift of the Spirit that he had promised in the Old Testament. That wonderful person, the Holy Spirit, is the earnest, the, the partial enjoyment of the full inheritance until the consummation of all the blessings that God has purposed for us. The Spirit of wisdom and revelation opens the eyes of our understanding. He makes us know what is the hope of our calling, what are the riches of the glory of our inheritance among the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. None less than God, the Holy Spirit, dwelling in us could make us know what the resurrection power of Christ is toward us. And he's done it. The Father sent the Holy Spirit to give us this experience, to bring us into that family and give us this glorious experience of knowing the love of Christ. It's by the Spirit that we are made, not only the family of God, but the body of Christ, the church of Christ, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's chapter 1, verse 23. So Paul has already told the Ephesians, God saved you. And now he's saying he saved you with all these wonderful works of the Father and the Holy Spirit, and we're about to get to Christ. He saved you with all this so you would have this experience of the love of Christ all of your days, and you would grow in it. You would increase in it. The work of Christ, verse 17a, the first part of 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. As you read through Ephesians, our Lord Jesus Christ is the star that shines most brightly. There's no competition between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Paul takes great delight in revealing the glorious truth about Jesus and his works. Everything the Father does for his people, everything the Holy Spirit does for us is related to Jesus Christ. He is the executor of the Father's will. He is the sovereign who takes the power and glory to himself. The Lord Jesus Christ is and sends the Holy Spirit as the beginning of the fulfillment of his glorious application of his work of salvation for his people. Our Lord Jesus Christ. We're blessed in heavenly places by the Father in Christ. The Father chose us in Christ. The Father made us accepted in the beloved Christ. We have redemption in Christ through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Everything comes to us through Christ. One interesting study that you can do, I've done it a few times, and it's, it's fairly easy to do. Look for the little preposition in, I-N, in Ephesians. And if it's a Bible that you don't mind underlining in, then underline every time you see in him, in Christ, in Jesus, in the beloved. It's amazing. Maybe we should just call it the end book. And it's all about in Christ. So the Father has done his glorious eternal work. He's applied it to us by the Holy Spirit, but how did he execute that salvation in Christ? And where are believers now united to Christ? And our Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, Paul says, to dwell in our hearts by faith, he is no distant lover. He desires to dwell with you and in you. When the Father raised Christ from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, chapter 1, verse 20, he gave him a name above every power, authority, dominion, demon, angel, president, king, whatever, every name that can be named in heaven or earth. And he put all things under his feet 
and made him head over his church. So when he exalted that God-man, the king who rules over all things from the right hand of the Father, is it that he would be distant and separated from this world? In one sense, yes. But in another, no, his people are in him. And he says, I will be in you. He wants to dwell in and with his people. That is amazing. He made him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. The church is you, my friends. The church is the beloved and cherished body of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head and the church is the body. Just as the head on your shoulders directs, feeds, and cares for your other body parts by controlling all of them so that they fulfill the needs of the whole body, so your husband, Jesus, kindly nourishes, protects, and cares for his church. He loves his people. He united himself to his people in love. That's why now Paul directs all our attention to the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Is it not the love of the Father? Yes, we saw that in chapter 1. His mighty gracious purpose in electing us, plucking us, and you and me as brands from the smoking fires of hell is amazing. It is love. Is it? Is the work of salvation not the love of the Spirit? Well, yes. That holy dove did not despise to come down and apply the mighty works of Christ to us. His Spirit dwells in us and works for us and does mighty deeds by the merits of Christ's redemptive and new creation work. But Paul doesn't put it in terms of the love of the Father here or the love of the Holy Spirit. He speaks of the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Paul wants us to drink from this fountain, this part of the fountain, this part of the well of living water, the love of Christ. So God saved us for this purpose. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all work together to bring us to this experience of the love of Christ. And so that's why he says, after he mentions the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, Now he says in 17b, the last half of the verse, being rooted and grounded in love. So the father is the one who hears his prayer because he's the founder of the family. The spirit is the one who can work this glorious grace in our hearts. Christ is the one who dwells in our hearts by faith. And Paul says, I want you to be rooted and grounded in love. And in a little bit, he'll tell us it's the love of Christ he's focusing on. What does it mean to be rooted and grounded in love? It's fairly simple, I believe, but you could probably write books on it. It's to be established and strengthened by love. To be made strong and stable and fruitful by experiencing the love of Christ. And the way Paul words this, where he says in 17 here, being rooted and grounded in love, And then 18 may be able to comprehend, verse 19, and to know the love of Christ. The way he words this shows that being rooted and grounded in love is preliminary to the attaining of that deeper knowledge of Christ's love. So let me ask you this morning, are you rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ? Are you established in his love by faith? Does Christ dwell in your heart? By faith? Is the Spirit strengthening you with might in the inner man? Are you part of the family that the Father has created, that beloved family in all the earth that God has made? Are you planted in this new garden and are you rooted in the love of Christ? Maybe you're a new transplant and we can't see much fruit yet, but are you planted? Are you in Christ? If you are in Christ, if you're rooted and grounded in love, then you're set to go further, to advance, to go deeper, 
to seek a deeper knowledge of Christ's love because that's what God saved you for. So let's read the core of this prayer, verse 17b through 19. Being rooted and grounded in, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. So secondly, not only did God save us for this experience of the knowledge of Christ's love, but we should seek a deeper knowledge of Christ's love because Paul indicates by his words here that we can and should attain this very thing. That experience, that knowledge of Christ's love. If Paul prays it, then it's yours to seek. It's mine to seek. This is the property of all saints. And if you're a saint, it belongs to you. With all saints. What is a saint? A holy person. Someone set apart to God. Sainthood is not attained by tying on a long mask. Sainthood is given by the grace of God. Saint in the New Testament is another name for Christian another name for a believer, another name for someone who is in Christ. Because by the work of Jesus Christ, that person has been set apart, made holy. They have been justified, forgiven of their sins, and they have been set apart to a new relationship with God, a new life with God. And then their life is to reflect that. And the life isn't what makes them a saint, but the work of Jesus makes them a saint and then their life is to show that, it's to show it forth, it's to be the light that is displayed to the world around them. A saint is a former sinner, now washed, sanctified, justified by the blood of Jesus and the Spirit of God. Paul, say, Paul is saying here by saying, with all saints, he's saying that Christ's love, a deeper experience of his love, belongs to all God's people. So do you have it? You're a saint. If you're in Christ, do you have a deep experience of Christ's love? Do you think you'll never attain such an experience? Are you discouraged thinking that the real Christian life is too hard and deep and you're, you're having a hard time attaining this experience of knowing Christ's love? Paul is praying for the Ephesians that they would go deeper in the love of Christ. And therefore, he's showing us it's worth pursuing. It's worth attaining. Paul says, I want you to have what belongs to you. This is what all saints should have. And all saints have it in the, saint, in the sense of possessing it, in the sense of having right to it. Now, go get it. Experience, know, comprehend the love of Christ. Knowing the love of Christ is Christ's gift to you. If Christ has loved you and he sent you the love note, then it's time for you to read it. We need special power to comprehend Christ's love. Verse 18, as he starts the verse, he says that he's praying for them that they may be able to comprehend with all saints these various dimensions of Christ's love. And what he had earlier requested was that the, that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would give according to the riches, verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man so that they would achieve this goal. Knowing the love of Christ is something that you have to be empowered, enabled to comprehend and to understand. The love of Christ is a supernatural thing. Our natural minds don't grasp it rightly, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. May he give that to us this morning that we would see the love of Christ and that we would comprehend it. Paul then gives a list of dimensions to illustrate the impossible dimensions of Christ's love. Christ's love is multidimensional and vast. He says, 
Verse 18, what is the breadth and length and depth and height? Paul is not giving us here an outline of specific areas that we're supposed to focus on. I don't believe. You can't measure Christ's love in inches and feet. You can't say, well, it's this wide and this deep and this high and so on. He is using these four dimensions to suggest that there is a complete, perfect fullness to the facets, the areas, the aspects of Christ's love for his people. It's multidimensional. It's infinitely vast. Think about some of the dimensions of Christ's love. And this is just this part's just a meditation. Do your own. Add to it. What are the dimensions of Christ's love? Let's take the metaphor of dimensions and think about it. Think about the divine dimension of Christ's love. Christ is God. He is the Son of God. He is God of very God. The Son is God. God is the Son, just as the Father is God and the Spirit is God. We hear the astonishing voice of the love of the Son of God in the Psalms when he says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Now, God did require it, but he's using hyperbole. God's not really interested in that. What does he want? What does he really want? What does God want? Then said I, lo, I come. This is language that we can see as referring to the Son of God saying, I'm going to come. I'm going to come and take the place of sin offerings, burnt offerings. I'm going to come in the volume, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. Why were all those promises written before Jesus came? Was not the Son of God revealing himself, saying, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming? Did he do that as man? No. The babe had not been born in the manger. The Son of God loved his people. Should know, he made himself of no reputation, Philippians says. Paul tells us in Philippians. And took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to take that position. The divine dimension of the love of God. Each of these, you could spend years thinking about just one aspect of Christ's love. Does he love you? Does he love you? Paul says, I've written all this in Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 so you'll know he does. Now, may the Holy Spirit work in you so you don't just read it and be like, yeah, predestination, yeah, redemption, yeah, justification, yep, uh, substitution, yep, sanctification, got it. I can pass my theology test. No, to know the love of Christ. Know the human dimension. Christ is man as a man Talking about his work, he says, I came or I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Were you lost? He came looking for you. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. He's a king. He will reign forever. But he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life a ransom for many. Christ. Our Savior, did he love you? A ransom? Dying upon a cross, yes. If it was for you, it was love. Being found in fashion as a man, Paul continues in Philippians, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Think of the man, Jesus Christ, Think of him having lived that sinless childhood and then becoming the rabbi that he was and astounding the religious teachers. Think of him. Think of him humbling himself at 33 years of age and saying, I will go to that cross. It was not just an inevitable train of events. He did it actively. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He laid down his life. Is that not love? 
Is that not love for you? Think of the human dimension of Christ's love. Know the official dimensions of Christ's love. In his offices, he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Not only is he the son of God who said, I come, what? To save that sinner. Not only is he the man who said, I came not to seek and to save. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life. But in his offices, he's the prophet, the priest, and the king of his people. As a prophet, he loved you by speaking to you. Who's, who wrote God's word on those tablets of stone? Was it not Christ? Is he not the word who reveals the Father to all people? Is he not the eternal Lagos, who is God and is with God? And does he not reveal himself to Abraham and to Moses and to all of the people of God throughout history? Is he not the prophet with a capital P? And then is he not the priest of his people? Did he not offer himself as a sacrifice and intercede on your behalf to the Father? He loved you. He loved you. As a king, he ruled and he rules and he will rule forever. On your behalf, in love to your soul, does he love you? Is it anything to you? Is it life to you? Is it a distant thing that you forgot about for a little bit? Bring it back. Reel it back in. Look at the love letters of Christ. Read them to yourself. To know the love of Christ. Paul says, I want you to be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. There's a glorious time dimension to the love of Christ. The love of Christ stretches from eternity past, if we can call it such. We don't know how to measure eternity, but we'll try because we're humans. So eternity past, in God's eternal purpose, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, not divided in their essence or being communing together and covenanting together or purposing together of the salvation of wretched sinners, their own creation. The love of Christ stretches from eternity past to the ages to come, as, as Ephesians says, when he will show us the riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. It's almost like the idea is he's going to take us to his heavenly palace and spend eternity showing us his gold and silver and rubies and diamonds. We, we're not interested in gold and silver. It's the glorious treasures of knowing God, loving Christ and loving him as he loves us because now our love is such a feeble, pale reflection of his love for us. And there's not only the, the divine dimension, the human dimension, the official dimension, the time dimension, there's more dimensions, but I have a few more. The personal dimension. The Father chose us, chose us in him. He made us accepted in him. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Paul says, he loved me and gave himself for me in Galatians. He, he steals the whole work of Christ and says it was for me, Paul. Can you do that? I think that's what Paul wants for us. I think when he says, when he says here that you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, know the love of Christ. He's saying, take it and make it yours. Can you say he loved me? Or are you stuck on us? There is a corporate dimension. I'm not de denying that. It's glorious. The church of Jesus Christ, he's made us the people of God. But it starts with me. I have to be saved before I can be added to that group. Did he love you, singular, and make you a part of you, plural? The personal dimension. Look at the broadness of his love to the worst of sinners. Look as he saves or, or speaks the gospel clearly and plainly to that Pharisee, that upright law-keeping Nicodemus. And then the next chapter, an adulteress at a well, a Samaritan, an outcast. In, the, in John chapter 3, someone that everyone would look up to. In John chapter 4, someone that most Jews would not even look toward. 
he welcomed, this Christ welcomed Gentile Cornelius and Simon Peter the Jew. He welcomed Timothy, the son of a Christian home, and these Ephesians from pagan backgrounds. Look at the broadness of Christ's love. And then think of yourself, whether you are from a a godly home, a religious upbringing, or whether you are from the dregs of depravity in this world. The broadness of his love encompassed you and brought you in. He loved you. He loved me. Do you know his love? Know the intensity of his love. And he reveals that intensity to us in so many ways. It's all through the Bible. But if we think about the man, Christ Jesus, in the book of John, it says in chapter 13, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which are in the world, he loved them unto the end. And then it says that in his love he concocted a plan to demonstrate his service to his people. So he wrapped himself in a towel and washed their feet. The intensity of Christ's love. In that same context of that same evening of the Passover, Luke tells us that the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, with desire or longing, it's actually the word that's often translated lust, but it's not lust here. It's not a bad thing at all. With desire, with great longing, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. We know that Christ is doing many glorious things, but there's one thing that we often should remember Christ is doing. He's waiting. Our Lord Jesus Christ is waiting for you and me. He has a feast that he's preparing, and he says, I won't touch it until you show up. Know the sacrifice of Christ's love. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, our Lord Jesus Christ said. In his incarnation, he gave up all that he had. In his obedience, he gave up his rights and his privileges. In his preaching, he thought only of his people. In his watching and praying, he prayed for his people. In fasting, in enduring temptation, he did it for you. In his suffering, his dying, his burial in the grave, he laid there three days for you, out of love for your soul. He rose again for you. He ascended. He's now seated at the Father's right hand. Why? Yes, for his glory. But his glory is gloriously tied to your good. He loves you. Another dimension, and we'll be done with dimensions, the faithfulness and stability of Christ's love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is one of the dimensions of Christ's love? It's steadfastness. It's faithfulness. It's stability. Do you think that your sins last week shook that love? Do you think that maybe the Lord Jesus does not love you now with what you did yesterday? His love is stable. It is sure. It endures. It is strong as death, as Song of Solomon pictures for us. And, my friends, if you love the love of Christ, one of the dimensions of his love is that we will pursue it for eternity. And we will know more and more of the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. That's where Paul tells us This is infinite. I'm not really telling you that you will reach the bottom. I'm just telling you to aim there. You will not discover all of Christ's love, but why are you just scratching the surface? 
Why are you so poor in your appreciation of Christ's love when it's so vast? Why are you content to just recognize and remember and be able to repeat some statements about Christ's love? Why don't you let the sweetness and the beauty and the life-giving force of that love well up within you and bear fruit? So, Christ, uh, God, the triune God saved us so that we would seek a deeper knowledge of Christ's love. Paul's prayer here shows us, it tells us that we can and should seek a deeper knowledge of Christ's love. And then thirdly, seek a deeper knowledge of Christ's love because as Paul tells us here in chapter 3, verse 19, at the end of the verse, it leads to being filled with all the fullness of God. To know the love of Christ that passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? I believe it means to have all the mighty works of what the Father did for us, the Spirit did for us, the Son did for us, fully operative in our lives. God the Father has made us by the work of Christ, by the Spirit, a family in heaven and earth as we've already seen and as he mentions here in this passage, as well as in chapter 2, he tells us we're a holy temple in the Lord. And as such, the church, is, the church of Jesus Christ is already the fullness of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 23, he says, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So this is a true reality that by the merits of Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the creation of the church as assemblies of believers all over the world, we are the fullness of God in this world. It's not going to get any better in this world, in this age, than the church of Jesus Christ. That's the best it will be in this age. But the experience of living that out in the lives of Christians can and must grow and increase. We are the fullness of God. Christ has purchased it. He's done it. He's made the church the fullness of God in the earth. But now, Paul says, this is the already and not yet. In other words, he's made a new creation, but we're not fully in it yet. He's given it to us, but we're not consummated in the new creation yet. He's made the church the fullness of God, but we experience only the deposit, the earnest of the Holy Spirit. The whole, the redemption of the purchased possession is yet to come. So we have something. We have the Holy Spirit. He's made us the fullness of God. And now Paul says, I want you to experience that. I want you to live like and to have a knowledge of and a sense of being the fullness of God. Everything the Father did for you, the Son did for you, the Holy Spirit did for you, I want it all for you. I don't want you missing out on any part. I don't want you saying, well, I, I like kind of got on the Christian bandwagon thing and it's pretty dry. Paul says, what, what religion was that? Christ did such glorious works for you. The Father purposed. The Holy Spirit applied it. Now, bask in the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. Maybe Paul is alluding to the fullness with which God filled the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament because he tells us we're his temple. So remember when the temple had been fully prepared in 1 Kings chapter 8, sacrifices were offered and the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all. The cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. And if we're the temple of God by the Spirit, then to be filled with Him would be that wonderful reality of being consumed by, overwhelmed by, even fully controlled by the fruit of the works of God on our behalf. So we should seek a deeper experience of the multi-dimensioned love of Christ so we can be filled to overflowing with the Shekinah glory of God, the overwhelming presence of the Almighty, Maybe we'll have to stop doing what we wanted to do. Like the priest. They're like, oops, sorry, we can't. He told us to do all these things, but we can't even do them because now the presence of God is here. Not so we can wow people 
but so we can be like the Lord Jesus Christ, who is full of the Spirit without measure, and he shed its blessings abroad to others. He tells us something else about this being filled in chapter 5, which is a couple chapters later. We can say that it includes all the workings of the Holy Spirit, because in chapter 5, 18, he says that we should not be drunk with wine wherein is excess, and you know wine, it's, it has alcohol in it, which is something that comes into your whole body and your mind, your, your brain, and begins to influence and affect every single part of you. Paul says, don't be filled with that. It usually doesn't bear good fruit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit instead. Filled with the Holy Spirit. What does this fullness that comes from a deeper knowledge of Christ's love mean for my life practically? What will it look like to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, Paul has just told the Ephesians a good story. If you start in chapter 1 through chapter 3, it's one big, nice story. He starts at the beginning. Long time ago, there was God, and he did all of this for his people. And then now, chapter 3, 14 through 19, the part we've read and focused on, is kind of like the end of the story. And now he's going to talk about how to apply the story. Well, if you think about it like that, how do good stories, at least children's stories, how do they usually end? They lived happily ever after. Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in the remaining chapters of Ephesians that being full of the fullness of God means Christians will live holily ever after not happily ever after on its own, and holiness is the greatest happiness. Being filled with the fullness of God means living happily ever after. It means living holily and honoring God to the end. Paul's prayer here is the hinge of the book of Ephesians. It's what separates between chapters 1 and 3 and 4 through 6, as I mentioned at the beginning. And Paul states this glorious thing about experiencing Christ's love, and then he shows how love is supposed to shape the rest of your life. And we won't spend time there. We're almost at the conclusion. But later, if you want to, you can read chapters 4 through 6. Read the whole book of Ephesians. It's great, of course. But if you read chapters 4 through 6, thinking about that theme of having experienced the love of Christ and being full of his love. Now, Paul says, right after he said that, he said in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, what? Therefore, because of that, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And he begins to talk about how they are to treat one another, how they are to think of the world, how they are to think of their Christ, and how they are to deal with each other in the church. And he mentions love several times. He says that love is to direct husbands toward their wives. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he says, Be followers of God as dear children, that family language again, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us and offering a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. What if, what if every single one of us were experiencing a deeper knowledge of the love of Christ for our souls? And what if we were each filled with the fullness of God, and so we all were filled with the fullness of God, then what kind of life together do you think we would have? I think it would be like what Paul describes in chapters 4 through 6, and it would be beautiful. It would bring glory to God. It would be the fulfillment of why he said, I'm making you a temple. What's that for? Worshiping God. I'm making you a family. What's that for? so that you would bring glory to God in the world as the restored new creation that God created. Remember, God made a family, and it broke. God made a new family, and he's going to maintain it to the end. So being full of experience of the love of Christ means being filled with the fullness of God, which enables us to then fulfill the purposes that God has given us in this world. So seek a deeper knowledge of the love of Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you filled with all the fullness of God? Are you little by little attaining to the comprehension, the knowledge of the love of Christ for your soul? Knowing Christ's love should be gas in your engine. It should be power for prayer. It should be strength for service. It should be living water that bubbles up and bears the fullness of God's fruit in you. Did the Lord of glory 
Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, Son of Man, love you? Be honest. Did he love you? Don't answer out loud. If he loved you, glory in that. Be amazed. Be astonished. You might even be so excited you might tell somebody. Did he desire you? Did he seek you? Did he purpose to save you from eternity? Did he agree to his father's choice of you from the filthy masses of mankind? Did he come for you? Did he live instead of you? Did he die on your behalf and rise again for you? Did he take your law place, your debt place, your cross place on Golgotha? The scripture says he did. He did all of that for you. Look what a great match King Jesus has made between himself and your poor soul. People love stories of great princes marrying unlikely women. Milkmaids, peasant girls, you know. We love the story of Ruth, the Gentile outcast, who gets an inheritance, a child, and a place in the royal line of Israel. But think of yourself and Christ. The scripture likens the relationship of Christ to his people as a husband and a wife, a bridegroom and a bride. What an unlikely couple. Did he really love you? Drink in his love. Pour your love back out to him, but not from a sense of debt, but from the overflowing of a love-filled heart. Are you ever at a loss what to pray for for someone else? Pray this. Oh, Lord, grant my brother or sister strength by the Spirit in their inner person that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith and they would know the breadth and length and depth and height as they're grounded and rooted in love of the love of Christ that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Have you lost your first love for Christ? Maybe you lost sight of his first love for you. His first love and his last love are the same. Ours are not. Our first love, our middle love, and our last love are often very different from each other. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Repent and do the first works. What is the first, first work? Looking off unto Jesus, the lover of our souls. Is that not what you did at first? Did you not hear the gospel and say, he loves me? And were you not melted under that and controlled by that? Did it not become a driving force in your life? Where is it now? Is it still driving you? Or did you put it in the back seat? Let the love of Christ drive you. And I'm sure among us here, there are some who have never felt the love of Christ. You've never been won over to him by his gracious words and his deeds of love. Have you not read, have you not heard what he did for poor sinners like we are, like you are? Maybe you wonder, is his love really for me? Remember that he, the king of glory, the Lord of heaven and earth is the one who gave us the whosoever promises. He is the one who gave us the any man promises. If any man come unto me and drink, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. It is sin to refuse God's threats and warnings, but it is ungrateful, presumptuous sin to refuse his calls, commands, invitations of mercy and love. He is mercifully, graciously, lovingly calling, repent and believe the gospel. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He is saying, come to the only one who truly loves sinners. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your love. I pray that we would be filled with might by the Holy Spirit, that our feeble and weak apprehension of spiritual things would be enabled, empowered to lay hold of this most glorious of all truths, the love of Christ. Oh, Lord, 
Did you love us, Lord Jesus? Reveal your love to each of us. Oh, Lord, I grow so cold. I forget your love. Lord, thank you for reminding me of it recently. That you loved us. You loved me. Lord, love my brothers and sisters. And Lord, let them not ignore your love. I pray, Lord, there might be some here who have not experienced your love. Oh, I pray they would not leave this place without a glorious glimpse, a starter glimpse. Lord, give them the beginning of a life of loving the love of Jesus. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Please stand with me for the benediction. Ephesians 6, the end of this glorious book. Paul blesses his people and gives glory to God. He says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Love of the Father, love of the Son. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. You are dismissed.